Welcome to Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I am Jim Grant, and uh, with me today, as always, Eric Whitehead, uh, turning the dials. Great Evan Lorenz, Deputy Editor of Grant's Interest Rate Observer. Phil Grant, who produces our almost daily, but certainly never indispensable daily market summary. And uh, who else? Oh, yes, we have a special guest today. We have Jim Bianco, who is the eponym, the president, and the macro strategist at Bianco Research, LLC. This episode of Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air is brought to you by uh, Audible, which offers you an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original radio shows, news, comedy, and more. So you hear more about Audible a little later. Hey, Jim, we're going to start this nice and easy. Ready? Okay. Okay. It says here in your Bloomberg bio, James Arthur Bianco is also known as Jim. Now, is that correct? That is correct. Okay. Now, where are rates going? I'm known by other things, too, but we'll go with Jim for now. So the second question was somewhat facetious. It's a question you get. Perhaps you've had it. Sure, you've had it, Jim. When you climb in the back of a taxi cab, the driver might recognize you from one of your many appearances on many of the media on which you appear, always scintillating. And the driver catching a glimpse of James Arthur Bianco might say, Hey, Jim, where are rates going? So what do you say? Uh, I would say to him, down until the spring, late spring, early summer, and then probably up for the rest of the year. No, and wait, probably we have say, not seen that. I was going to say, all right, we're talking about LIBOR, SOFR, the three-month bill rate, the five-year, the 10-year, or the distant end of the curve. Being that I'm a bond guy, whenever you say rates, I default to the 10-year note. Okay. So if okay. you want to talk about more specific rates, we can, but that's kind of my default answer is always the 10-year note. Okay. Well, I think the concept of default in the context of bonds is the most excellent one. You know, we ha- we have been uh, recently talking about the uh, the meager rewards on offer for the buyer of corporate debt securities, uh, and in fact, we have I think contended that investment grade corporate debt, the holders of that debt, have become the chumps and the absolute designated losers of Wall Street because you know they, they get debased by the Fed and they and they get uh, demoted credit wise by the management of the company that issues the securities. Spreads are tight, what's in it for them? So do you have any thoughts, Jim, on perhaps we're missing something, but what is in it for the holders of investment-grade corporate security these days? Well, I, I guess uh, I guess we're uh, upgrading the holders of high-yield securities into some more higher level of intelligence then right now by that statement. There isn't much in the way of holding on corporate debt. You're right. They've got everything working against, or that everything, they've got a lot of things working against them. Uh, the belief, which I share, that longer-term rates are going to go up, either being long rates via some kind of uh, inflation pickup or economic growth, short rates, because the Fed keeps insisting that they're going to continue to raise rates many times over the next uh, year and a half or so. They're also, I think, struggling too from where they are in terms of the economic cycle. Right now, I'll use earnings as an expectation. We've cut taxes. Wall Street is expecting nothing short of a 20% increase in earnings, operating earnings year over year, first quarter to first quarter. Thompson Financial has data on this back to 1979. The only time you ever get those kind of earnings increase are the year after a recession, after you've already had negative earnings and you're rebounding. It's unheard of to see earnings that high, you know, in year eight or grow that fast in year eight of an economic recovery. It's a, I've said it's akin to the Olympics. Still. We're going to start the high jump at the world record and let's see how everybody does. And um, you're setting yourself up for a potential disappointment. And in the investment grade world, such a disappointment will not be taken well. So they've got a lot of things that are working uh, against them right now. Jim, you, uh, Evan has pointed this out, that, uh, that you and your team, which by the way, I now see includes data science. Mind you. Yes. But you and your scientific team have been monitoring economic activity, the strength thereof, and also expectations 
about economic activity, and I gather that you are seeing a bit of a divergence. That's right. You know, in both real economic activity and inflation, the data itself is starting to turn down globally. That is that the actual economic numbers are starting to soften. I wouldn't say they're bad. They're just heading in the wrong direction. And based on my comment before, when you've got that high bar set at a world record, and we're going to see 20% earnings, you don't want to even see any kind of downtick in the economic data because it sets up the potential for disappointment. Now, if you look at the expectations data, it's great. It's wonderful. Everything's good. All the surveys, whether it's the large company surveys by business roundtable, record high. If it's the NFIB small business optimism index, 35-year high. Even the conference boards, consumer confidence, 18-year high and all of that. We're expecting great things. And all of those that you know, spew talking points on financial television, that's one of the defaults that they always go to. The economy is great. Well, maybe it was 60 or 90 days ago, but it isn't showing that kind of greatness right now, and we haven't updated our thinking. And I'd also add, we kind of got the same thing going in inflation, too. Everybody is expecting inflation. We have said that collectively, if you look at all the forward measures of inflation, whether it's market-based measures like TIP, Treasury Inflation-Protected Securities, you know, pricing in future inflation, or certain surveys uh, like the regional Fed surveys or ISM. Collectively, we've got the most amount of inflation expected in the post-crisis era, and we're not quite seeing it. Now, we're not seeing no inflation. We're just not materializing as fast as everything goes. So yes, the data is not quite living up to the hype that we had even just 30 or 60 days ago. Speaking speaking of hype, the the Fed is on its high horse, and uh, the Federal Reserve has let us know that it will intend, it will will implement at least three rate increases, and sometimes one hears whispers of four. But is it possible the Fed is believing the expectations and is, uh, you know, in the the, the kind of the crazy hall of mirrors way, is reacting to data and it, and in its reaction um, is uh, itself causing people to do things they might not otherwise do or to believe things they might not otherwise believe. There is a definite Heisenberg principle to what the Fed does, that their observation does affect the outcome. And there is no doubt if you read Fed speeches or, uh, you know, Fed research, and I unfortunately have to do that part for my job, that expectation surveys, the ISM, those types of things play a great role in what the Fed does and thinks about the economy. Famously, Greenspan used to talk about at the 2000 peak that he needed to have some kind of an input from a corporate CEO and would talk to John Chambers on a regular basis to get a feedback from him as to what was going on in Silicon Valley. And of course, we all know John Chambers pretty much gave him bad advice up and down the line. So yeah, the Fed does that a lot. And so since everybody expects good data, they're saying three rate hikes. Well, what about the actual data kind of weakening a little bit? They're not going to come off that until the expectations change, but that will change too late. What is the likelihood of the Fed overplaying this hand, of it remaining uh, too set in its agenda of quantitative tightening and of rate hiking, and thereby of aggravating what might be an ordinary cyclical downturn? I think the probability is very good. Not only are they looking at the data, but let's talk about quantitative tightening. No one has ever done this. This is a new experiment to see what happens when you try and reduce a central bank balance sheet. And behind them, we've also got the ECB and the BOJ that are eventually, I think someday, going to have to do that too. Now they've put all the king's horsemen and all the king's men together, and they've come up with a model to say how this is going to work. 
And their model has said that a $675 billion reduction of the Fed's balance sheet over two years is equivalent to a 25 basis point hike, to which I've responded, I have a spreadsheet too, and I could type numbers into it as well and call that a model as well. But the fact is, they've got no historical precedent to work from. I'm sorry? Well, I just ask, is it a little disrespectful of the profession of economics and of the institution of the Federal Reserve System? It it isn't disrespectful (laughs) as much (laughs) as... No, I got you. I'm sorry. They're asking their... I'm going to defend the PhDs and say, look, you're asking too much of them. You're asking, you know, my favorite joke of all times is, how do you know an economist has a sense of humor? They use a decimal point. And that is what the Federal Reserve is guilty of over and over again. You're asking all of these people to give you a level of precision and clarity that they just can't. And you should know that they can't do it, but you go ahead and demand it of them anyway. And therein is where the problems come over and over again. Well, Bernanke famously or infamously said that it takes a model to beat a model, but maybe it takes no model to get us from here to there. Uh, Jim, just on there not being a precedent for central banks shrinking their balance sheet, didn't the ECB let LTROs roll off its balance sheet and then growth slowed pretty dramatically and then they started their QE program after that? Yes. I mean, that, that is also the other issue that central banks uh, definitely have as well, too, is that the minute that they try something and it, the results are not as planned, which is almost everything they try, they get results that they don't plan. And especially in the post-crisis era, they seem to backtrack from it as quickly as they can and try and go back to what the, where they were before. So there's been small attempts at it, but what the Fed is insisting on is a permanent halving of the size of their balance sheet, $4.5 trillion to $2.5 trillion and stay there forever. That has not been tried in any close way. Well, this episode of Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air is brought to you by Audible, which is a way to read a book when you don't have uh, the wherewithal of reading it. Audible offers you an unmatched selection of audiobooks, the original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. What you ought to do is get yourself a free audio book with a 30-day trial at www.audible.com slash grantpod. That's G-R-A-N-T-P-O-D. So, uh, in fact... We have a particular book to recommend to you. It's a China's Great Wall of Debt uh, by Denny McMahon. And Audible is offering our listeners this free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com uh, slash grantpod and browse. Well, you can browse the unmatched selection of audio programs and uh, get yourself a free title and start listening. So go to audible.com slash grantpod or text grantpod to 500 500 to get started, that's audible.com slash grantpod or text grantpod, G-R-A-N-T-P-O-D, to 500-500 to get started. Then what are the consequences likely to be from of these 10 years of interest rate tampering? I mean, you and I are both, uh, each in his own way, kind of an interest rate observation field, and uh, perhaps we speak our books, but I think we might agree that interest rates are critical prices. They are prices, and to the extent that we have lived through a 10-year demonstration of the uh, uh, the futility, I'm going to say, advice of the futility of price control, we ought to expect some adverse consequences. What form, if you agree with that, what form might these consequences take? What is what is the bill likely to be 
for the manipulation of these critical prices. Well, there's a couple of things in there, and I do definitely agree with it. And let me just say that I think that interest rate manipulation or any kind of manipulation doesn't create a trend as more as it exaggerates a trend. So if the Fed was not in the interest rate manipulation business starting in 2008, what would have been the trend of financial markets? it would have been higher. It would not have been nearly as high as we've gone because they have been, through the expansion of their balance sheet, purchasing securities, depressing interest rates, and forcing everybody out the risk curve under the guise of you know, Milton Friedman's portfolio balance channel, uh, which is what they've used as the excuse. So we wouldn't be nearly as high, but the trend would have been up. So what I fear is the reversal of that is going to produce volatility, which we've seen, and a correction much greater than we would have had otherwise. So maybe what I argued about a second ago, the economy might be rolling over and we're suffering from too high a set of expectations, and we're going to run into some turbulence. That turbulence is going to be exacerbated because the balance sheets of the Federal Reserve have manipulated markets much higher than they would have been otherwise. If they started from a lower base, they wouldn't have corrected as much. Uh, from there. So I think that that's how it's been playing out. And the last thought for you, and to go off on a little other tangent here, I do think something significant has happened to markets in the last two months or so. The famous risk on, risk off theory of how markets work. And let me define that because everybody's getting a little different definition. Risk on means that assets like stocks and corporate bonds will increase in value at the expense at the expense of risk-off assets like government securities and risk-off assets. And when you have a risk-off environment, the opposite occurs. Stocks and corporate bonds go down, but government securities would rally. So ingrained in everybody's thought is that the average wealth manager pushes this 60-40 portfolio idea where you have to be 60% stocks and 40% bonds because when stocks go down, the bond portion rallies. That stopped two months ago. That ended that risk-on, risk-off, 60-40 portfolio does not work and hasn't basically since the high in late January. Why? We've argued that we have transitioned away from the biggest concern that the market has right now is financial stability. That was the dominant concern. It is now transitioning because it's all expectation to inflation. The biggest concern the market has is inflation. And what is it concerned about with inflation? That we are going to have enough of it that the balance sheets are going to be forced to be reduced, rates are going to be forced higher, and that, to me, is at the crux of all the volatility that we've seen. Stories about who's left the White House, whether it's Gary Cohen or Larry Kudlow coming in or what was the latest on the trade war or porn stars or all that stuff. We all know in financial markets that when the market wants to go down, any excuse will work. When the market wants to go up, no excuse will work. So a year ago, when we were putting tariffs on wood products out of Canada, which we did almost a year ago today, it wasn't even news because the markets ignored it. Today, when we say the word China and the Dow falls 400 points, that becomes major news, but that's not the reason. The reason is I still think it's that things are rolling over and we've got things ultimately elevated higher than they would have been because of balance sheet. Jim, you're among many other things. You're a market, check, market technician. In fact, you were certified as such. What's the significance of a 3% 10-year yield and the fact that it never got there during this cycle? What is the significance of that? Technical analysts will tell you at one level that you know markets like round numbers and that three is a round number. But more being a little bit more scientific about it because we do have people at our firm with the name scientist after it, 3.05% 
was the high yield in 2014. We got to 295. Should we break three, and let's assume that also means 305, rates would be at at least a five-year high, if not longer, uh, depending on how much they break it. And those types of, you know, breaking out of the awake into fresh water always are significant from a technical standpoint. So coming up short of that at 295, not quite getting to 3%, or that multi-year high at 305 means that we're still within the wake of the market. And if we were to actually push it to that next level and break out, I think that that would portend much higher yields. If nothing else, again, it's another Heisenberg thing. People know it, they see it, they react to it, because so much of what we do is driven by that stuff. Jim, your opinion, true or false, the 35-year bull market and bonds began in 1946, uh, ended uh, with the extreme sentiments, extreme readings in sentiment and price and value uh, in the first week of July 2016. Agree? I would say that that is true, that it did end. And if it turns out to be false, if at some point in the future that you want to jingle me up and do one of these, now that the 10 years at 1.25%, now what? The backdrop that would get us there would be so deleterious, I don't even want to think about it. So that's why I do think that the, uh, that the bull market has already ended. Now, it may take some time for it to unfold to the level that we would consider it to be a bear market. But I do think the low yields are in. Evan, you have anything else? Yeah, at the very beginning of the call, you said that you expect rates to kind of sink into the summer and then rise after that. What's giving rise to this kind of seasonal pattern in interest rates you expect? That is based on, um, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm at my technical look on the market. That when I look at measures of bond market sentiment, I could probably host a dinner at my, at my living room table for all of the bond bulls that are left in the world right now. There isn't many of them. Everybody's bearish. Everybody's ready for the move to 3% or higher. And the contrarian in me says, okay, that means the first move will be to 270, 265, challenge that opinion, maybe chase them out of it, and then we'll start to move higher. So that's point one to that. Point two to that is, I do think that there might be a recognition coming soon that we're slowing a little bit more than we think. Not to the point where we would call it a recession, but the example that I might throw out there again is that earnings number. Look, we've got these eye-popping expectations for earnings right now, and it's going to be I think it's going to be a feat to even meet them, and there's lots of reasons we could come up short. And if we do, one of the arguments will be maybe the economy's cooling just a tad or so, and that will help to push rates down. Jim, finally, something like $200 trillion, maybe a few trillion less, but who's counting really? Something like $200 trillion of loans, uh, derivatives especially, are indexed uh, to this thing we call LIBOR, what is uh, proven to be a somewhat imperfect rate, but still it's the benchmark short-term rate. Now comes something called SOFR, S-O-F-R. SOFR is 180, LIBOR is 230 or thereabouts. Is LIBOR going to leave us? If so, how soon? And what is the meaning of this huge divergence between the rate that the establishment refers, SOFR, and the rate we have, LIBOR? I'm going to say that, you know, to use an old example, which I know that you love, that SOFR is new Coke right now, and uh, LIBOR is Coca-Cola. And the reason I like that example is we all know from history that new Coke was a failure. And I think that SOFR is going to go down as you know, another Bloomberg symbol that people can look up from time to time and go, whoa, that's interesting, but what does it mean? LIBOR will remain the the benchmark for now and for a while. And why do I think that a couple of things? 
you mentioned that they're, the whole derivatives market, the loan market, everything is tied to LIBOR. In order to say, okay, LIBOR is a flawed measure, which it is, it, it, that's not disputed. We need to get the lawyers in the room and rewrite every single contract and erase the word LIBOR and put in the word SELFER. That's going to be very difficult to do. The second thing we need to do is get everybody to want to do that, and the only way they're going to want to do that is they're going to need their uh, data scientists, their algorithmic writers to say, push this SELFER thing into your model and say, are you comfortable with it? They're not close to being comfortable with it. Third and lastly... Uh, I would say, as far as this goes, I'm going to give you a bit of a cynical answer here. Jamie Dimon was quoted in 2008 about LIBOR as saying about people that cheated with LIBOR is, well, why wouldn't you cheat? Because LIBOR is the new measure of a bank run. If my bank reports much higher funding costs than everybody else, that is a signal to you that my bank is in trouble and could create a bank run. So it's better to lie through your teeth, say everything is fine, and then some point down in the future you pay your fine and you move on. Because otherwise the consequences of telling the truth could be your firm goes out of business. I still think from a cynical standpoint that some financial institutions want to have that option available to them should we see another period like 2008. Because otherwise... The consequences the other way are too great. So, uh, final thought is that uh, I've read a lot. We all have read a lot about this spread between uh, LIBOR and this, uh, and the, what, what are they called? What's the rate against? The op overnight index swap, LIBOR OIS? Yes, LIBOR OIS. And uh, to a man, to a man and a woman, the authorities say that the spread between LIBOR and OIS is not meaningful. It is a technicality. It has nothing to do with the state of the financial system. It has nothing to do with financial strains or popping rivets. It is just what is. Now, does not the contrary and you think that maybe something is going on in this spread beyond um, an excess of Treasury bills? Uh, for now, not yet, because let's break down what's going on with this. The three-month LIBOR rate is rising with the two-year Treasury rate. That part of the uh, spread is increasing in interest rate. The shorter end of the curve, the overnight index swap, which is causing the widening spread, is not. It's been holding steady. It's been very sticky. I'm of the opinion that there is a lot of technical things, mainly with the tax, um, with the tax bill change and the repatriation of funds with Treasury bills. But I would, I would caution two things about that for now. That technical does not mean forever that at some point in the second half of the year, if it is still wide, I would start to worry about it a lot more. Uh, and second of all, let's not discount the simple part of what's going on here. Three-month LIBOR is rising. It is going up. It is at the highest level since, since 2008. And that good old-fashioned higher interest rates in a highly indebted economy is not good, and that should, that should be considered to be a concern all by itself, whether or not we want to get to the second derivative of how it is relative to the overnight index swap. Well, Jim, as always, fabulous. Thank you for being with us, and ladies and gentlemen, until next time, thank you for tuning in to Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air.